morning. Good morning. Good morning. That's a message we need to get out. And that's a message that we need to believe, that it doesn't get better than this on earth. Until we go to be with Jesus in heaven, that to be a fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ and to be worshiping uh, God with God's people, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it doesn't get any better than that. And we want to be inspired to be here and to be experiencing that kind of a presence of God. This morning we are continuing our uh, study of the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first sermon of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And as we've recalled from previous weeks, Jesus has been assembling uh, a group of disciples. Not only has he called the uh, 12 disciples that we, you know, know, but he's also been assembling a larger group of, of those who want to follow him sort of, you know, fully and to be devoted followers of his as well. And so when we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, Jesus is sort of sharing with us uh, his values as God. What does God value? What does he want to see in those who are following him, if you will? Um, I guess I would entitle this passage maybe sort of the contours of discipleship. Uh, what does a disciple look like? What does God want a disciple to look like? And, and so I think this will be really good for us because I think even within our own church, God is calling out disciples right now. Because remember, not every Christian is a disciple. Every disciple is a Christian. That's where it starts. But not every Christian is a disciple a fully devoted, fully dependent follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's the Great Commission, not go and get everybody saved. That's where it starts. But the Great Commission is go and make disciples. And only disciples can make other disciples, which is why then we need to be committed as Christians to becoming a disciple and to be making disciples through our own walk with the Lord. So I'm going to be sharing a lot with you today. Jesus did not expect his original audience to absorb all this that day, nor do I expect us to absorb all of this in one day. I expect it to be what we begin to, to give thought to and consider as far as being or becoming or continuing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But this is certainly a message for disciples. You see that in verse 20. He looks up to his disciples, and literally in the original, he looks right into their eyes. He is addressing this message to those who desire to be his disciples or to those who have already committed to be his disciples, his followers. And the very first thing you see here, then, is the word blessed or blessed. And what I want to do is, as we go down through this passage, I hope to give you just a couple of key words to sort of help us track through this passage. Because, again, there's a lot in here to unpack. And you and I aren't going to even come close to unpacking it all today but I think it will give us a good start that then it can give you something to take with you 
and, and maybe the next couple weeks, you can dive back into this passage of Scripture and glean a lot more out of it as well. But disciples are those who know and recognize and appreciate that they are blessed. Blessed. It means to be supremely fortunate, to be well off. Jesus, in a sense, is defining what true happiness is here. And you'll note in verses 20, 21, and 22, it's not about our circumstances. It is finding our joy in God and in our relationship with him, in following him, and in what we have through him. That's where our blessedness comes from, which then means that we can count ourselves blessed at all points in our life. And that when we know and recognize that we are a blessed people, then that leads us to be more thankful, we have a greater gratitude and appreciation for our God and for what we have through him. Because you'll notice what Jesus says. He starts out by saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject you as evil on account of me? Yeah, blessed. Do you feel blessed today? <laughs> Do you know that you are blessed? Are, are you carrying yourself as if you are a blessed individual? Do you know you're blessed? And do others around you know you're blessed because of your level of thanksgiving and gratitude and worship? Again, this is a word that will even stir and inspire our worship. When we wake up every day and we know how blessed we are, it inspires worship. It inspires praise. It inspires singing songs of praise and just lifting up throughout our day thanksgivings to God for all that we have and all that we are in him. We are a blessed people. And that's where Jesus starts, blessed. The second thing I want us to note here in the sermon of Jesus about contours of discipleship is not only are we blessed, but the whole goal of being one of his followers and disciples is that we become more like him. So think of the word resemble or resemblance. In fact, you see this principle over in verse 36. He says, just as God is merciful, you be merciful just as your father is. Literally, in the likeness of your father, you be merciful, you see. And then verse 40, here's like the key verse of the whole passage because it's about being a disciple. And he says, look, a disciple is not greater than the teacher or the leader or the one who's discipling, which would be him in this case. But when that disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher, like him, you see. That's the goal of discipleship, becoming more like Jesus. That's the goal of salvation, Romans 8, 29. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus Christ. Every day, we should be growing more and more like him. Now, we'll never be God. <laughs> That's a mistake that other religions and other people make. We can never be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent like God. We can never share God's attributes. But we can be like God in other ways, you see. 
for instance, being merciful to others just as God is merciful. Or let me give you a biblical example that I'm sure made a great impression upon the followers of Jesus when they were watching him be crucified. And while he was hanging on the cross, one of the things that he said was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Later on in the book of Acts, a man by the name of Stephen, a follower and disciple of Jesus, was being stoned. And you know what Stephen said as he was being murdered by those around him? He said, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. Basically, don't, don't put this on their account. Same thing that Jesus said, just in a little bit different way. Stephen was being like Jesus, you see. Now, one of the keys in verse 40 is the words fully trained because you and I just don't wake up becoming more like God without giving it our own effort. We are responsible to enter into God's gymnasium, if you will, every day and allow him to work us out, you see, to make us fit, to whip us into shape, if you will. And this is where many Christians then never become disciples because they don't want to go through God's training. <laughs> they want to live life the way they want to live life, and they don't want to put forth the effort and the energy and the time into being fully trained by God to be more like him. And as I said, too, every day you and I can be in God's training room or even in his classroom, and we can be learning more about how to become more like him. Again, a verse that I would encourage you to like memorize and meditate is Luke 640. A disciple is not above his teacher, but when fully trained, he will become like his teacher, okay? Disciples are blessed and we are to resemble our God that we are living for and that we are following more and more every day, but it doesn't stop there. If you look down to verse 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you to do? And then in verse 47, he says, everyone who comes to me and listens to my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what that person is like. You see, another characteristic of one of his disciples is what James says, that we become doers of the word and not hearers only. And that we don't say one thing and, and spout off about all these things that, you know, we are when we're really not following through and doing them. We all can get caught into that trap of saying a lot but not following through with what we say, who we are. And Jesus says, why are you calling me Lord? If I'm your Lord, then I'm the one that decides. I'm the one that determines. I'm the one that leads you. I, I'm the one that... My voice carries all the weight and authority of, of anything in your life. And, and if you're calling me that, and you're saying that I'm following you, Jesus, but you're not doing the, the very basic things that I'm telling you to do, then there's a disconnect there, you see. There's a disconnect. There needs to be integration, if you will, in our relationship with God. There needs to be continuity between what we say and what we do between our words and our actions. I love that phrase that Jesus uses in verse 47, who listens to my words and puts them into practice. Applying 
the things that we learn from Jesus every day, whether it's through our worship, through our time in prayer, through our time in his word, through our time with other Christians. However God is speaking to us and we are hearing him, we are to put those things into practice. And I love that word practice because it, it's a continual, consistent thing. And again, that's why sometimes so many Christians have a hard time gaining traction as disciples because they don't do anything consistently enough. They don't, they're not in his word consistently enough. They don't pray consistently enough. They're not in the house of God consistently enough. Everything is sort of just this, you know, because we, we don't live our lives as his disciples with non-negotiables. That like, these are my priorities and then everything else has to fit around the priorities that I have with my God as a disciple. No, most of the time it's, this is what the world's dictating to me and this is what I want to do. These are my desires. And then when I have leftover time and all of that, then I fit God in in all these other times. No, a disciple's going to say, I start first with God. And I'm going to put these things into practice and I'm going to do them consistently in my life. And then that even leads back to then that then I can begin to be more like him and resemble him. So blessed, likeness, resemble, doers of the word, integration, continuity. Then I want you to go back to the beginning of this passage in verses 20 through 22, but then into 23. He's talking there about being blessed, and I want to direct your attention, first of all, to verse 22 before we get to 23, because 23 really deals with 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject you as evil on account of me. Then notice what verse 23 says. Rejoice in that day. In fact, jump for joy. Why? Because Jesus says, because great is your reward in where? Heaven. The next thing I want us to, to think about then as disciples is that whole concept of deferred gratification and that we are primarily living for eternity. We're not living for the here and now. In fact, Jesus again talks about this over in verse 35. He says, I'm telling you to love your enemies, to do good, to lend without expecting anything in return, because then, and I want you to note that word then, then you will have great reward. Then, not now. Now, it's again, it, it's not that we as disciples don't experience great things being his disciples now, but what Jesus wanted his disciples to see then and what he wants us to see now is that we don't live for the here and now, because that's not everything. That the best for us is always yet to come in eternity. And that God is reserving his best rewards and his best blessings and all of that for eternity so that we can enjoy them and experience them throughout eternity. Because if he gave us his best blessings now, we would have to leave them behind when we die. God doesn't want that. He wants us to be able to enjoy them forever. So you and I have to get into the mindset that, as I've said many times, that even the bad experiences and the difficult times that we go through here on earth as Christians, this is the only hell we will ever know. And for those that don't know God and continue to reject him throughout their life, 
what good they can experience in this life is the only heaven they will ever know. And, and Jesus is combating something that we still have to combat today, and that is that we can get caught up in living for the things of this world, in living for material things and temporal things and things that will not last. And Jesus is trying to get them to see it's not about the now primarily. It's about investing in eternity. It's about laying up treasure in heaven. It's about keeping in mind every day that I'm not to be living for the here and now. I'm to be living for what's to come because that's God's best. That's when it all starts to reverse. That's when God reverses everything. That's when God vindicates his people. It's not now, it's then. In fact, you'll notice in the blessings in verses 20 through 22, he talks about the now and then you will. He says, blessed are you who hunger when? Now, because he says, you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who, who are mourning now because you will laugh. You see, it's not about now, it's about then. And it's about keeping our eyes focused on eternity and on eternal things. That's where it all is going to make sense. That's where it's all going to line up for us. Not now, not ever on this earth, but then. And, and when you and I can get our eyes off the world for a moment and stop living for the things of the world and start living for eternal spiritual things, that's when our discipleship really starts to be evident in our life. Let's go to the next one. In verse 27, whew, Jesus says, love your enemies. Oh my goodness, really? Yeah, love your enemies. And then he talks about doing good to those who hate you and blessing those who curse you and praying for those who mistreat you. Jesus. Really? Yeah. Because Jesus wants his disciples to be able to love through him, to love supernaturally. You see, you and I can't do that humanly. The only way we can love like that is through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And notice something else that Jesus is saying. Because we can get all proud as Christians just for not doing something bad to those who've done something bad to us. You, 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 right? I mean, I hope I'm not the only one, you know. Like, okay, I didn't slap them even though they slapped me type of thing, right? I, I, I withheld doing something bad to them. Jesus goes beyond that. He says, no, I don't want you just to be, you know, feel so good about not retaliating and doing something bad to the people. I want you to actively do good to them even when they're not doing good to you. That takes it up to a whole other level. And then I want you to see what Jesus says in verses 32 through 34. Because the word that I would use to describe this principle of discipleship would just be distinctiveness. That Jesus is saying, my followers have got to live at a higher standard than the rest of those around us in the world. And Jesus understands how difficult that's going to be. He gets it because we're going to be so different than the world and even maybe other Christians because they're not disciples. They're just Christians. And so they're not going to follow Jesus all the way and, and listen to everything that Jesus says. They're going to stop at some point and say, nope, can't do that, which we can't do it, but we can do it through the power of Jesus Christ. 
So notice what he says in verses 32 through 34. He says, if you love those who just love you, what credit is that? L literally what he's saying is, where's the proof and power of my grace? Even sinners love those who love them. Then he goes on to say, so if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to even sinners do that? And then he says, if you lend, but the only reason you're sharing something is because you're waiting to get something in return from those that you lend to, he says, what's the big deal? Even sinners do that. Jesus is saying, if you live a certain way, even those who don't know me, have no relationship with me, do not follow me. Even they do that. Even sinners, three times in that passage, 30, Jesus is saying, but my disciples need to be different. My disciples need to be those who love those who are their enemies, who do good to those who hate them, who bless those who curse them, and who pray for those who mistreat them. That's a whole other standard, right? Jesus is calling disciples to a higher standard, which is why then in John 13, 34, and 35, you have these words. He says, guys and gals who are following me as my disciples, I need you to love others as I love you. And by that kind of love, all men and women will know that you are my disciples because that kind of love will stick out. It will be distinctive. It will be different from any other kind of love that the world knows about. It'll be foreign to them. They can't even understand it. And boy, do we need that kind of love in this world today. And do we need that kind of love in the church? Because we can't even get along with each other as Christians many times, much less with those who are, we considered our enemies or who hate us or who mistreat us. And we don't see that kind of love being exhibited by very many people in leadership anymore, regardless of what kind of leadership you're talking about. I think it needs to start at the grassroots, at places like the Oasis Church, where this place can be known as a place where we love each other, and we love each other supernaturally. We don't love each other the way the world loves others or the way the world teaches us to love each other. We love each other the way Jesus teaches us, by word and by example. Three more. I'd like to share with you this morning out of this sermon. If you go over to verse 39, right before verse 40, Jesus talks about the blind leading the blind. And he says, you realize that both of them are going to fall into the pit or the ditch because neither one of them has the sight, the spiritual sight in this case, in this context, to be able to see where they're going. Where does clarity come from? It comes from these two words that I see in verses 41 and 42, honesty and humility. Keep those words in mind. Those are words, again, that are contours of being a disciple of Jesus. Honesty and humility. Why? Because notice what Jesus says in verse 41. Why do you notice the little speck in your brother's eye? Literally, 
a little grain of sand is about the size that Jesus is talking about there. But you don't see the beam, the two by four in your own eye. And how can you say to your brother, let me remove that little speck while you still have the two by four in your eye? Jesus says that's hypocritical. Jesus says first, first, take care of the speck in your own eye or the beam in your own eye, excuse me, and then you'll be able to help the other person with the speck. So notice something. Jesus is not saying that we don't have a place to help others with the things in their life. But he is saying this. Make sure that whenever you're trying to fix others, that you've taken the time first to fix yourself. That you are humble enough and honest enough and self-aware enough that you got stuff in your own life, that I got stuff in my own life. And before we start judging and being hypercritical and trying to fix everybody else, let's make sure that we turn the light of God on ourselves first. Because Jesus says, when we do that, when we live that way with honesty and humility, then we can have the clarity to be able to help others in a better way. You see, clarity, we need clarity. But again, in this sermon, Jesus is saying our clarity to help others comes from our honesty and humility. And being able to admit, you know, I got a beam that I need to take care of in my life first before I start going around telling everybody else about the specs that they've got in their eye. I got stuff that, and you know you're walking as a disciple whenever God is moving and working, and instead of you and me thinking about, oh, that was good for them, I hope they hear that, because we've all been there, right, in church, like you're hearing a sermon or a message, and you're thinking about 10 people that, boy, I wish they were here to hear that. Instead, think about, no, I need to hear that first. What, God, what, what do you have for me in that message? And let me then begin to put those things and apply that to my life. And then I can more clearly help others. Because even as I approach them, I'm going to approach them humbly. I'm not going to approach them as you need fixed and you've got all these issues. No, when we approach people to try to help them with their issues and their problems and their spiritual walk, it will be from a place of humility. Because I'm going to first see the things in my own life that need taken care of before I start trying to reach out and help others. Then let's talk about fruit. <laughs> Verses 43 through 45. Jesus talks about fruit. And he says, look, a good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. Uh, a tree is known by what kind of fruit it produces. And so Jesus is talking here about fruit, but he's also talking about more than that, something deeper than that, because then he goes on to say, it's out of the heart, out of the wellspring of our life that everything in our lives is produced. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, you and I really don't have to be focused on the fruit. You know, many times I've, I've, I've encountered Christians over the years who they're focused on fruit, like bearing fruit, because they know, you know, God says... Be fruitful, and, and, and in this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, John 15 and all this, so I'm going to focus. No, Jesus says you and I don't need to focus on the fruit. All we need to focus on is our heart. 
Because the nature of a tree is, whatever the nature of the tree is, that's the fruit it's going to produce. An orange tree doesn't, doesn't wake up every day going, oh, I hope I can produce some oranges today. It will because it's an orange tree. Its nature is an orange tree. It will automatically, by its own nature, produce what it is. So that's why Jesus says, don't focus on the fruit. The fruit will come if your heart is right. So make sure that your heart is aligned with me and the fruit will be there because it will come from that good place where your heart is where it should be with me. But God does call his disciples to be fruitful. But again, you and I can't be fruitful from the outside in. We become fruitful from the inside out. We focus on our heart and making sure that God is able to work and, and, and shape our heart and work on our heart and all of that. And then once he, we give him our heart and we place our heart into his very capable hands, then he can begin to shape our heart and the fruit will just flow. It'll just flow naturally out of the abundance of the heart. And you'll notice Jesus says, oh, and if you want to know one place in your life where you can check where your heart is, your speech. Because he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And again, what we say, how we say it, all of that, that is a barometer of our heart's condition. And so we always can get a pretty good lay of the land for where we are spiritually by what comes out of our mouth. One more. Foundation. Let's use that word. Because Jesus begins to say in verse 47 that those who come to me and listen to my words and put it into practice, I'll show you what kind of person this is like. It is a person who hears what I say, puts it into practice, and digs down deep. In fact, in the original, Jesus couldn't be more descriptive of digging as deep as you can go. It's literally he's saying Dig and dig and dig very, very deeply down to the very bedrock. And then lay your foundation there. Because he says, storms are going to come. And that's true. Jesus never promised his disciples that we wouldn't go through difficult times and have storms and all that. But Jesus is saying, when you have the proper foundation as someone who's following me as a disciple and you dig your life down deep into me, and you root your life into me, then you will have a foundation that even when the storms of life come and they shake that house, that house is going to remain firm. Because he says the opposite is, there are going to be many Christians who never become disciples, who do not take the time, the energy, the effort, or have the inclination to dig down deep with their relationship with God and ever truly follow him. And they're going to be without a proper foundation. So that when those storms come, their life gets rocked. And they are shaken. And can I say, I think if nothing else, these last two or three years in our world has shown where a lot of us are with our spiritual foundation or lack of it. Because one of the things that we have seen in these last couple of years, even in the church, even amongst those who claim to be God followers, is how many people 
did not have a proper foundation going into everything that happened in the last two or three years, and it shook them to the core. Jesus is trying to prepare his followers because, folks, can I just tell you, the world's not going to get any better. And the challenges are going to continue to be there for us as his followers. Remember, Jesus even said, I know that I'm putting you in a world that's going to hate you, that's going to insult you, that's going to reject you, that's going to exclude you. If you are one of my disciples, I know that. So I need you to be strong enough to be able to follow me even though you're going to be in that kind of a condition. Can you do it? Only if we're a disciple. Only if we're a disciple. Otherwise, we're going to cave. The pressure's going to get too great, and we're going to be like a lot of people in the Bible who just say, Jesus, sorry, I'm done. I'm tapping out. I, I'm, not, I'm not following anymore. I'm just going to be good with being a Christian and knowing my sins are forgiven, and I'm on my way to heaven when I die, and I'm good, but I'm, I'm tapping out. The only way we stay on course and experience all that God has for us as individuals and even as a church is to stay on the path of discipleship. And Jesus in Luke 6, 20 through 49 has basically laid out for us the values of God. These are the things that God values. These are the things that are significant and important to him. These are the things that he wants to see and build into us as his followers. So we know what he expects. We can never get to heaven and go, well, Jesus, I never expected you to, for me to be that way. No, Jesus has laid it all out there. But again, he doesn't force any of us on that road of discipleship. It is always a loving invitation. He says, come, follow me. And Jesus is making that same invitation here this morning to us in this auditorium and to those of you who are watching from your homes today. He is saying, will you follow me? Will you be my disciple? Will you continue to follow me and be my disciple? Because Jesus is saying, I know it's tough right now, but as I've told you in my very first sermon, it will be worth it all when you get to glory. Now, you may have to mourn. Then, you will laugh for all of eternity. Now, you may have to go through some hunger pains. Then, you will be satisfied and fulfilled like you can never imagine. Now, you may have to go through persecution and all kinds of of pressure and, and negativity, but your reward is going to be great throughout eternity. Then, Jesus saying, don't live primarily for the now. Live for the then. I'm going to ask our worship team to come and get set here on the platform. And as they come, we are just in a season right now in the Gospel of Luke and the story of Jesus where Jesus, I think, is just saying, will you be my disciple? Will you follow me? Will you be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, building our lives upon him, knowing it will be worth it all? That's where we are today. That's where we are today. So would you stand? I'm going to close this in prayer. And then we're just going to go right in 
into our time of, of worship today. And God is calling us out, saying, will you be my disciple? Father, we thank you today that, Lord, you have made it so clear to us. There's no guesswork in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You, you, don't, you don't hide anything. You don't pull any punches. You tell us exactly how it is, God. And you give us your heart. You give us your values right out there and say, it's there for the taking. Is that what we want? And the choice is up to every last one of us. All of us either have that choice of saying, yes, Jesus, you are worth it all, and I'm going to follow you no matter what, or no, Jesus, I love this present world more than I love the world to come. This world captivates me more than you do. I'm going to say no. I pray today that for all of us here, that we recognize and appreciate that there is no one or nothing greater than Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that's ever going to be more fulfilling or satisfying than following you, Jesus, with all of our hearts. So God, may we lift up our voices to you in praise and worship today as we dedicate our lives to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.